0: Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FM LP and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org.
1: It's kind of, I mean, New Cold War with China was a bipartisan election issue in an election where there were no, no one agreed on anything, right? We were told that these were the two most different candidates in the history, that your very future was on the line on every single issue. And that was maybe true on a few, but on, on China policy— the Democrats were, as in, I mean, they they were trying to out-hawk each other on China. Mm-hmm. That really, really concerns me.
0: That was Danny Sherson, our special guest, who is going to weigh in on China and so much more. But first, my name is Jim Walgermuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org for more information. Now, you can get a copy of this show by just going to SoundCloud or Anchor Podcast and searching Veterans for Peace, the Hector Black chapter. You can also easily find us through your podcast app on your phone. Just search Veterans for Peace. We'll pop up. All right, the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Just go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. Okay, on the show last week, we remembered the Winter Soldier Investigations, and we played a portion of that webinar hosted by Veterans for Peace. That was on March 12th. Uh, We did not get to air too much of it, and so I want to go back and pick up a clip that we missed that really stood out. Now, here are two ladies, Margaret Stevens, veteran and associate professor of history at Essex County College, followed by Adrian Kinney, president of Veterans for Peace.
2: But I want to suggest that with this question around politicians versus the people, I want to suggest that I really believe Democrats are the greater danger. I was there in 2008, and I wouldn't call it liberals versus fascists. (laughs) I mean, I think that they are also. When I was there in 2008 and we were in IVAW, I don't think any of you have any idea what type of pressure we faced about not speaking out against Obama, exerted from within the anti-war movement, especially when we were getting all this money from the Clinton Global Fund and all of these random people in California, I don't know who they were, but we were getting all this money And all of a sudden, we couldn't talk about Afghanistan anymore. And so I just want to be very clear that I don't think that somehow being the loyal opposition or, you know, maybe not speaking out because Kamala's there or Joe and they're not as bad as Trump. I don't think that's true. I really want to say, especially in the context of the anti-war movement, I feel like these Democrats are the greater danger. Definitely um, hugely problematic. Because a Democrat gets into office and then all of the people who should be standing up and holding our government accountable and demanding change for peace and social justice, they just they go silent. Radio silence. Obama continued most of Bush's programs and policies. In fact, he perfected them and Democrats were silent.
0: That came shortly on the heels of Biden's bombing of Syria on February 25th. Then we heard this from Anthony Blinken.
3: We're united uh, in the vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific region where countries follow the rules, cooperate whenever they can, and resolve their differences peacefully. And in particular, we will push back if necessary when China uses coercion or aggression to get its way.
0: Then this from Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. I know
4: Japan shares our concerns with China's destabilizing actions.
0: And then back to Blinken, to the Chinese.
4: I have to tell you, what I'm
3: hearing is very different from what you described. Uh, I'm hearing deep satisfaction that the United States is back, that we're reengaged with our allies and partners. I'm also hearing deep concern about some of the actions your government is taking.
0: So today we want to talk about this saber-rattling with China and other parts of the Biden foreign policy. And so we have special guest, Danny Sherson. Danny was recommended to me by Executive Director Garrett Reppenhagen of Veterans for Peace. So Danny is a retired U.S. Army officer, contributing editor at antiwar.com, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and director of the Eisenhower Media Network. His work has appeared In the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, The Nation, Huffington Post, The Hill, Salon, American Conservative, Mother Jones, Shear Post, and Tom Dispatch, among other publications. He has served two combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and later taught history at West Point. He's the author of two books, a memoir and a critical analysis of the Iraq War. First, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. And then, Patriotic Dissent, America in the Age of Endless War. Along with fellow veteran, Chris Henry Hendrickson, he co-hosts the podcast Fortress on a Hill. You can follow him on, on Twitter, at Skeptical Vet, and his website, Skeptical Vet, Vet, SkepticalVet.com. Uh, Danny, thanks for joining us. Um, we're honored to have you with us. I know you've written extensively about your involvement and your experience in the Middle East, and you did serve right in the belly of that beast. But before we get to that, um, we want to know what you see from the Biden administration and can you weigh in on our recent statements and confrontations with China?
1: Well, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And, you know, a lot of these things are related. And so often there's this you know thing that happens in the media, especially in the establishment media, where everything is discrete. Like foreign policy is is done regionally, and we only you know we talk about the Pacific as though it doesn't touch other things, right? But you'd mentioned India earlier, which I'll say something about a little bit later. And you know, India is a big is a big part of this. Our our idea that we can use them as a balancer. And, you know, that kind of is that connects right back into the you know, Afghanistan, eastern part of the Middle East region. And so U.S. policy in general, its, it's, uh, it's obscenities and its absurdities usually uh, has more connectiveness than sort of discrete regional varieties. But sometimes the first overseas trip of you know, different administrations, whether it's the president or the secretary of state, um, their early trips send a signal. Not always, but they often do. So, for example, Trump was, you know, I'm, I'm going straight to the, the Saudi sword dancing and orbs. I mean, that's the old obscenity, right? That's the, that's the old-timey sort of a, a American last, you know, 30, 40 years of just kowtowing to the Saudis and then, you know, taking a little jaunt over to their opportunistic allies, right, the Israelis. But by going to the Pacific and making this a cornerstone, of what it appears to be a cornerstone of the administration is, is two things. One, I think it's, it's important to watch and it's dangerous. And the second thing is it, it's a kind of in line with the administration that Biden was VP in because you know Hillary Clinton was pushing really hard and, and sort of convinces Barack Obama, uh, along with some other people. Many of her people are in the Biden administration now, her, her lower staff, her mid-range staff, this whole pivot to Asia, pivot to Asia. Uh, the Middle East, that, that didn't go so well. North Africa, that didn't go so well, despite trying our darndest to, you know, ruin it and achieving that to some extent. We're going to go out to the Pacific. And the idea seems to be that that's like the smart play. That's like the realist play, like don't get sucked into a quagmire. Uh, Unfortunately, what's really going on there, I think, is a a heightening of tensions, uh, wildly dangerous to do so. Uh, misunderstood, the view from Beijing, never taken into account. And I think that what this trip was and what some of these statements are about is that the U.S. policy in the Pacific appears to be um, only we can treat the, the oceans and the seas near us as our own lakes. We get to do that. And it's a hypocrisy that Beijing and Moscow and Tehran, they, they love pointing out. And, you know, the messenger can be flawed and the message can be not all wrong. So, you know, we treat the Caribbean as an American lake, but the South China Sea, right? It's key word there is the middle one. uh, You know, they have no rights there. And and again, I'm not taking the Beijing position on the intricacies of law at sea, but what I think you're seeing there is a aggressive, uh, militarist kind of acceleration of what's really a coalition building against China. You know, gathering up all the other states in the region, Mm -hmm. big and small, Asian as well as australia and then you know india and uh trying to encircle beijing and i just i don't understand in what universe this ends well right because i feel like i've seen this movie before and uh, we barely made it out without nuclear annihilation and and frankly for some reason i'll talk about it later i think it could be worse this time
0: you just heightened my anxiety a little <laughs> bit
1: but i think accelerating uh, or heightening <laughs> anxiety might be like my brand that might be what i, I do with, <laughs> right? i'm like sad about that too i don't even mean to yeah. Uh, it's just kind of where it leads, but I I do think that exceptionalist nations, right? Nations that call themselves exceptional and indispensable and all these like terms that we use about ourselves. I wonder sometimes if self-awareness is even possible for Mm -hmm. such a nation, for the government and the top officials, of such a nation. So, you know, we are almost incapable of seeing the world through anyone else's eyes or even imagining the world through anyone else's eyes. And, uh, you know, I think that lack of empathy, that sort of like empathy, ADHD, that I think our country has always had, but is getting worse, um, that really is a formula for miscalculation and uh, aggressive activity that ends up blowing up in a form of blowback that maybe we don't foresee, but really ought to, because all the signals are there. You know, the the first thing to understand about a lot of this, I think that people miss is the this idea of like china as a as a monolith as a a dogmatic ideological monolith and mike pompeo was big on this right he he kind of brought this talk back i mean he this guy was saying things like oh this is a marxist leninist state and oh and i'm like what this idea that it's as simple as that, that that we could just like lay a dogma on it is fantasy and and here's exhibit a Right. And I think some of the the, the folks from, you know, like the baby boomer generation and the Mm -hmm. Vietnam War generation would would know this. Vietnam itself puts the lie to the idea that, you know, there's some sort of communist ideology that's really driving most of this behavior by China, whatever that behavior is, because by 1979, four years after Saigon falls, China and Vietnam are at war. Right. China invades Vietnam. And uh, and now you've got a place like Vietnam, which is kind of a big backer or or complicit at least with sort of US policy in the region. But the question is why? Uh, Well, they see us as a protector and they see China as the nearer and the bigger threat to them, right? To their sovereignty Mm -hmm. and of course the islands that they're all sort of competing over. Uh, what, What I'm concerned about is sometimes when little countries, right? Smaller countries have a really big brother in the schoolyard they may act out too. So the response to watch for is certainly the one from Beijing, but but also from places like the Philippines and Vietnam, Malaysia, some of these other countries that we are kind of building a coalition around. Interestingly enough, Australia, um, some of their officials, inform, including like former prime ministers and stuff, are a little more circumspect, right, than, than even some of those Asian powers. And certainly then, the madmen who appear to be running China policy in the United States um, under Trump. And then I think we're seeing a lot of signals will be the same in, in the Biden administration, but, you know, out of Australia, you're seeing a lot more, wait a second, hold on. Like, you know, are we really going to want to bet on the U S to always be here? Are we always going to want to go into these two armed camps when we have the economic situation where we're also linked together? And Oh, by the way, they're kind of close to us. And, uh, It's interesting to see how the public opinion in a place like Australia runs, where I think it is a little more critical than what you see in the United States, where it's kind of, I mean, New Cold War with China was a bipartisan election issue in an election where there were, no no one agreed on anything, right? We were told that these were the two most different candidates in the history, that your very future was on the line on every single issue. And that was maybe true on a few, but on, on China policy, the Democrats were, as in, I mean, they they were trying to out-hawk each other on China. Mm-hmm. That really, really concerns me because one of the clips you played was, you know, the Democrats might be more of a threat to the peace movement or, or the anti-war movement. And, you know, I mean, there's something to that. Um, and that's not a compliment to the Republican Party, which is a cult-like party that is dead to me, right? I mean, I don't, we don't need to talk about that in many cases. I mean, they're just so far off the rails, but the Democrats will tell you that they're better, right? It's really important to them that, that, that you believe they're more decent. Uh, and I think that they kind of tell you they're your friend and then they go on uh, and do a lot of the same things like, like Obama did, for example. So this is, it's really concerning to me because I think the biggest threat from the Democrats is that they'll actually believe the rhetoric they were using to get elected, meaning... Russia, China, Russia, China, Trump's too weak on Russia. And we got to be tougher than him even on China. Well, they could blunder us into like a really, really messy, up to and including limited or complete nuclear war. And and wouldn't that be a tragic comic, you know, uh, postscript to the 2020 election, which is not to say that I thought Trump should have won. That's not what I mean one of the things about China, and again, this is not a, um, and I hate caveats, but I sometimes you have to do them, you know, it's not an endorsement of the, of the regime there, right, or, or of the government there, or the party. But China, strategically, they, they play a much cooler hand than we do, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know if they can eat 50 eggs, but they play a heck of a cool hand like <laughs> Lucas Jackson. They do. And what I mean is, they spend so much less than us, uh, but they invest in the, in the right places militarily. So it's this like area denial stuff. So it's like these missiles that can really put some of our ships at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, they cost a lot less than a ton of aircraft carriers, right? I think they just maybe put their second to sea. Uh, and their first one was like a, a leaky Russian like you know, retread. So first of all, there's a lot of alarmism about the actual power of the Chinese to project power overseas. Mm-hmm. We're the only country that does that. We, you know, and the French try a little, but we have to, like, refuel their planes and, like, give them more bombs. But, like, really, the only country in the world that is as expeditionary with their military is is us, you know, who goes into places like the South China Sea. So, like, I think we need to understand the threat from China uh, as something less than that. It's it's It doesn't start with them taking the South China Sea and end with them in San Francisco, right? That kind of alarmism that we've been seeing since, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Acts of 1882, it, that, that's back again, but it's not real. And then, you know something else I think that's important to keep in mind about this is um, the idea that we can have uh, some sort of saber rattling with no cost and that the risks will be low and the assumption that we have the right that we have the right that that we should send aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Strait whenever we want that we should put is that we should send carrier squadrons basically right uh, task force like right through the South China Sea. We can have that debate, maybe. I think I know where I come down on that, but it's not even talked about. I mean, it's an unquestioned, uncritical assumption that the United States has to maintain the sea lanes everywhere. And, and the Navy loves it because it means a bigger Navy and the bureaucratic knife fighting that goes on in the Pentagon. Look, this whole thing. Yeah. And, and here's one last way you know that the military is a problem on this, too. Um, because we have all these different commands, Central Command, Pacific Command, Southern Command, right? The pro-consuls, the Imperial pro-consuls that we have. We put these generals and admirals in charge. And the fact that we have these different services, Marines, Navy, uh, Air Force, Army, this big budget comes down and everybody wants a piece of it. Now, the way you get the bigger piece of the pie, okay, if you're the Army, if you're the Air Force, is is relevance. Relevance. They have to demonstrate relevance. In fact, even as like a captain and a major, that word was thrown around in the military. They love that buzzword. Oh, we got to stay relevant. Meaning- If necessary, we have to cook up threats. We have to exaggerate, uh, maybe fabricate, but definitely exaggerate like threats in our region or that are relevant to our service in order to get a bigger piece of the pie. The army does not like traditionally Pacific focuses because it's largely been the assumption, somewhat correctly, that there's not a big role for the army in like the islands and and you know it goes back to like the the rob reiner like the princess bride right like you know the the, no never fight a sicilian when death is on the line and never fight a land war in 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 asia right that was like the two rules he says exactly Um, (laughs) but the army wrote like and andrew baseman wrote a really good article on this the army like wrote a whole new document basically saying no 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 because they see the writing on the wall right no no there is a role for us right we got to secure these forward bases and it's like the whole machine starts running in one direction and it picks up a momentum of its own and that's what really worries me about that assumption that we should just be there and that we get to police it and we get to decide how everyone else acts Uh, i feel like this will take on a life of its own and i don't know that we're gonna be able to stop it and we've seen this movie before in the last cold war this is going to be 2.0 so it's my
3: my uh default response to all this stuff is always uh
1: raytheon's in charge you know I, I, i'm not a believer that everything is straight economic determinism but i will tell you that when it comes to the military industrial complex <laughs> you almost start to think well maybe it is just i mean the power of it is amazing and yeah. and it influences all kinds of things right so you got yeah. the afghanistan study group that says oh no we have to stay in afghanistan but if you look at who's on that like the dozen people that were members i mean they're all tied right into these it, you know some of them pretty directly some of them you know two degrees from kevin bacon or whatever but they're involved with the military industrial complex (laughs) but i've always said this too the the big companies the big merchants of death which is what we should start calling them again like in the 1930s the big gun runners in in american military industrial complex prefer great power conflict and even cold wars Mm -hmm. uh usually to the smaller sort of like brush fire anti-terror wars because those are brutal and they kill hundreds of thousands of foreigners and uh, so even sometimes thousands of Americans, and there's a lot of opportunity to sell the Saudis and the Israeli stuff, but the real prize, the mm-hmm. real money is in cold wars. And if mm-hmm. they get a little hot, that's nice too. But that's the real money because the Navy is, and the Air Force are more expensive, right? Yeah. They just are like big ticket items, um, arms races. That's what they want. That's like sweeps week for the military. All right. If we could have an arms race with the Chinese. And the great thing about the Biden administration, And I mean, Trump wasn't great on any of these things either. But the great thing about a potential Biden or Democratic administration is for the military industrial complex, you might well get a two track, two theater arms race, because you may have like the Russia exaggeration of that threat, and then also the China saber rattling. So, you know, Cold War 2.0, you know, might go back to the early days of the first Cold War before the split between the Soviets and the Chinese was recognized, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s. And you might get a two track, two theater, divide the globe in half, arms race, Cold War. Man, that'll be a boon for the yachts. And then when the seas rise and everyone else, uh, you know, is drowning in Bangladesh and along the coast, eventually in the United States, then, you know, the the, the Raytheon CEOs will be on their yachts floating around and, and, and living off the uh, the profits. And I'm, and I'm being tongue in cheek in a macabre way, but it's real. It's a real thing that we have to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, because we're spending money there when we should be spending, like you're saying, on uh, on addressing issues like the climate. And so and, and I, I guess uh, that is directly tied into I, I, I understand we've got one hundred billion dollars on the table for uh, some sort of nuclear upgrade.
1: I think it was originally billed as like a trillion dollar nuclear modernization slash upgrade uh, of the existing system. And that was an Obama administration start. Mm -hmm. And and that's important, right? I think that's instructive. That's absurd in a lot of ways. I mean, we are facing a situation where the only two existential, really, really existential threats to the United States and the world are climate catastrophe and nuclear catastrophe that's probably brought on by some sort of saber rattling, misunderstanding. This this almost happened several times in the Cold War, right? Where like Mm -hmm. some brave Russian colonel or sub-captain, like decided not to end the world, you know, like defied orders and then had his career ruined afterwards, oftentimes because they weren't so great in Moscow either. But those are the two existential threats, climate catastrophe and nuclear catastrophe, nuclear war. We, in order to stop those two things from happening and have the species go on, right, to make sure that people continue to have grandchildren, right, which not a guarantee for, for a younger generation, is some sort of cooperation. It doesn't mean everyone has to like each other, but have to you know coexist and work together to, to, to make sure those two things don't happen, to try to stop those two existential threats. But instead, we have this Cold War armed camp mentality that's like early Reagan-era nostalgia, but it's absurd. It's absurd, and it, it doesn't fit. And so to take a trillion dollars and throw it into the machine that could be one of those two existential threats is is a suicidal level of dissonance it's a societal suicidal cognitive dissonance and it's paid for by the ad agencies over at the military industrial complex and the congressmen that they have in their pocket and 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 this is this not hyperbole i mean this is really serious stuff and you know the people are distracted and for good reason i mean life is hard and paychecks are, are rough and all that but uh this is really serious and uh and i think that the uncritical nature with which this just like glides through the media and and lack of public debate is itself the story in many cases and again i think the media is failing us
3: abjectly on all this
1: (laughs) and it makes sense that they would to a certain extent Uh, yeah who owns them right there's like that uh that are doing this and look one of the ways that they they don't even have to put people in jail to control the narrative i mean they'll do that too but like you know the government doesn't even really need to do that i mean if it wants to control narrative i mean orwell saw this he wrote about this in like his lesser known essays and stuff it's what they do is they as a discipline they control who gets on the shows and who gets published that itself is a discipline so you don't have to say, you know, no, we're not publishing those kind of people and we're gonna, you know, suppress them and silence them. You just don't get invited on the shows anymore. Yeah. When you step out of line, you don't get an analyst job, right? I mean, they won't even bring you on as like, you know, Hannity and Combs or like Crossfire style debate anymore. Now they put two people who basically agree, like arguing with each other about minutia. It's like, who can outhawk who, but we're all hawks. I mean, look, we're all friends here. Uh, so these dissenting voices don't even really get invited in. Which controls the narrative, and well, if the the conglomerates that own these corporations that own these media shows don't even usually it's the same kind of thing. They don't even have to tell Rachel Maddow exactly. I'm su- I suspect they don't always have to be like, hey, Rachel, make sure you do this. Instinctually, when your you know salary depends on something, it's really hard to convince a man of something else, right? I think uh, Upton Sinclair said that. So your your mind is always on. The bosses, and you know how they feel, and so you kind of self a censor, and that's what Orwell talked about, like a long time ago in the forties mm-hmm. and the fifties. He said right. self censorship by polite liberals, basically, is what he said will be that will be the end of us, and will be the end of the free press. And I think we're, we've watched that play out now, haven't we?
0: Yeah, if we're not there already, we are. Um, <laughs> we're we're very close. But I, this is a question. I. I've never heard anybody even ask. And I was just thinking about it. I mean, the people in Germany are not stupid. The people in France are not stupid. The people in Japan are not stupid. You know, there's these other countries that are not stupid. Can't they come to the United States and say, look, look what's happening to the climate. Look what's happening with your saber rattling. Would you just stop? Would you grow up and stop being the bully in the corner?
1: I have wondered that myself, you know, a number of times. And I need to dig further into sort of the internal political dynamics in some of these countries. I know enough to be dangerous, but it does seem that the Europeans are kind of like the adults in the room to the extent that any exist at all on a lot of issues, right? Healthcare and just like there's a lot of things that we're just we seem like almost like backwards, like like we're barely out of the jungle in the United States on certain policies, right? Mm-hmm. But like we're, we're operating the lizard brain. And maybe the Europeans are marginally better on a number of these things. But they're also sort of tempered by the, you know, their sense at least, I think it's a delusion as well. Their sense that, you know, they're under our nuclear umbrella. Uh, they rely on us for so much. Um, if these countries want to main like take France, if France wants to, still style itself a great power a neo-imperial adventurist one in fact expeditionary they require like a lot of u.s logistics and so i think they temper their arguments and they say that they're being like realists you know like sober-minded like listen we're not going to be the petulant children telling america's the most country, powerful country in the world we, we got to be realistic but really what it is i think a lot of times is a sense of opportunism you know they feel like oh, we we need the United States for this or that. And, you know, they provide us so much safety and and they're scared of Russia too. And a lot of that is exaggerated in their societies. Now they may not be as bad as us. And I think their people are even more rational in many cases or relatively. But some of their leaders are still stuck in like this Atlanticist mindset of, we need to look westward to America. And uh, I mean, they're gonna ride that mistaken assumption to extinction along with us if they're not careful.
0: Well e- exactly. And you know and of course we should be looking at the UN and many of the countries in the UN have actually taken some uh, some some decent boats. Is there any way that the UN could assert more power or do something in your opinion? Yeah.
1: You know, the, the UN is a, is a tricky beast. I mean, I, I like the idea of uh, internationally minded organizations as an alternative to this, you know, armed camp nationalism that we're seeing on the rise, like this insular, um, it becomes militarist, chauvinist nationalism that we're seeing in places like Brazil on the rise and India, which will, is important with the China thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, the U.N. does get a, a lot of funding from the United States. Um, look at where the headquarters is. Uh, it's um, I, it would be difficult for the U.N. to pick up more steam and force uh, if if large countries didn't support that. Right. So in other words, if they if if, if the big powers don't want to give up their special status, especially those Security Council members. Right. Mm-hmm. the five permanent members of security council. I mean, remembering that the UN is like a time capsule of the power situation in 1945. Is that really still relevant? I mean, is that, you know, is the, are the UK and France really that, do they, should they be there? You know, that no, that even at the time you could raise the question whether France should have been there. So okay. it's like a time capsule of a time capsule, but unless the large country is willing to give up some of their autonomy or you know, power or control over overseas and international affairs, it's gonna be really difficult for the UN to be much more than like, partly a popularity contest. Now, it it is more than that. I'm not meaning to to demean it, it it does good work. But I I don't, I don't think there's a lot of uh, desire, right? There's not a lot of sort of like political capital uh, in the United States in Washington, at least, and in a lot of these other capitals to kind of give away some power. I mean, that's one of the problems with Lead, you know, uh, power in general or leadership in general is like very rarely do folks like pull a Washington or something, you know, and like give back some power or step down mm-hmm. or step back. And uh, and that that concerns me greatly. I mean, the United States thumbs its nose at international law, at indictments, at even investigations by like the, you know, the, the criminal courts and stuff like the ICC. It's like Trump was terrible on that. That was one thing he really was awful on, like, you know, uniquely awful to a certain extent. But all American presidents, they thumb their, we thumb our nose at international organizations. Like they only are allowed to exist and have as much power as we give them so long as they don't look at us, you know, or Israel. We don't really like when they look at Israel either. And I just think that that's really dangerous. And, and it really limits these international cooperation sort of, organ- these organizations are more geared towards the things we need, which is cooperation and working together to stem the threat of say, climate change and nuclear war those very same things, and they have the rug pulled out from under them constantly by the United States. Other powers too, Russia and China aren't always great on this, but the United States usually leads the way on that.
3: Well, there are, it seems like there would be some opportunities to counter this outright uh, hostility that we're engaged in right now with China just uh, around issues like uh, climate change, which we have to somehow have a cooperative relationship with China to make progress on that. And China, I think, would be very
1: approachable to that. Uh, you know, I think that China would probably be more amenable to it than the United States. Um, but one of the things that's, that's happening is there's been such a, so much mistrust and distrust has been sown. Um, you can only demonize a country publicly in the international scene. They they read our newspapers, right? They 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 used to read Trump's Twitter account, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, how do you come back from that? Like, I mean, you know, right. sometimes big powers, they you know, like the Machiavellis running each of the countries is like, yeah, yeah, we got to say bad things about each other in public, but we can, you know, Nixon can still go to China, kind of thing. Like to some extent, <laughs> they could be like, hey, it's all in the game, you know. But, but after a while, when it's constant and it's intense, uh, if you keep telling somebody that they're a villain, they're gonna start to believe that you really think they're a villain and sort of act accordingly. So any capital that we've got, like any, any windows for cooperation in China's rise, which is natural largely, and was only stifled in many ways by this like European you know, imperialism and slice up of China for about a hundred years. You know, any, any ability to do that is, is lessening by the day. And it lessens every time that there's more and more talk of like new cold wars. And I, I just think we have to be very careful about our rhetoric. It may, if you think it's going to win you election or, or, or score you points in public opinion polls, man, talk about short-sighted thinking, because we're talking mm-hmm. about existential issues here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's, and you know, <laughs> like God, karma, the universe, you name it, is going gonna, is gonna to laugh, is going to chuckle at the fact that. We had so many politicians who were, and we've done it forever, who were willing to, you know, win political points in the short term on issues like this. Cause it's 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 not serving we the people. Uh, it's actually the opposite of that, right? It's putting us in danger.
3: So do you have any uh, members of Congress or people in uh, different departments of government or administration that uh, you communicate with in terms of your concerns? and?
1: You know, <laughs> over the years, I've, I've met with um, congressmen and senators from, you know, my old district in New York, and then also in Kansas, uh, usually on sort of vague, like, activi- activism sort of trips um, with some of the organizations that I've been part of over right. the years. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I'm the type who will get upset and, you know, start calling offices <laughs> and, and send letters. But I wouldn't say that I've really been able to maintain like a very strong relationship beyond the polite, you know, office to me kind of, you know, communication. And I have found that there. I want Congress to do its job. It's very important to me that we actually follow the Constitution when it comes to war powers and and all foreign policy is not supposed to be just unilaterally the president's authority, and certainly not war. Right? That's very explicit in the Constitution. But I'll tell you, I, I, I think Congress is mostly even some liberal members, supposedly liberal members, they're, right, they're mostly comfortable, despite a little bit of rhetoric with delegating all that, ceding their uh, you know, mandated authority to presidents because then they don't have to take responsibility for it going well or not going well. And they're almost just, they're, I think Congress is perfectly happy for the most part, whatever they say, look at their word, their deeds, not their words, to have an imperial presidency which we've had i i think that congress doesn't want to be on the hook for unpopular things uh for disasters etc it's that they, they could point fingers from the corner while not doing their job right like like we need to apply the belichick rule right belichick to congress do your job right and but but i will tell you i have not had uh maybe that's a function of my own insufferability or something but i haven't had like great relationships that have been maintained but there, you know there's a few congressmen that i obviously have more respect for than others on these issues but um I don't think that by and large, there's a lot of stomach for taking back foreign policy oversight and, and taking back war policy in general from the presidents.
0: So we're screwed.
1: <laughs> well, well it, it just means it's going it, to, I mean, unless they're forced, unless they're forced in yeah. the grassroots, like salvation's not coming from Joe Biden or Congress per se, at least not on, on its own. <laughs> <laughs> well, well it, it just means it's going it, to, I mean, unless they're forced, unless they're forced in yeah, the grassroots, yeah. like salvation's not coming from Joe Biden or Congress per se, at least not on, on its own.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, we've been, t- um, you know, the webinar yesterday and uh, other discussions we had and following up on Winter Soldier, uh, I mean, a, a peace movement. Well, I don't know if there's a peace movement right now. I know there's plenty of webinars and discussions. Like we're having, like there was yesterday. There's one coming up on Tuesday again. Um, there's plenty of discussions,
1: uh,
0: but those discussions don't really move the needle.
1: No, I mean absolutely. Um, they 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 tend not to. I mean that's that's the the sad truth of it is you know because because we have such a unilateral sort of presidential foreign policymaking because despite all the talk of how different Democrats and Republicans are when it comes to the issues of war and peace or at least the issues of like America has to be an expeditionary power and all this stuff there's a lot more agreement once you get to the oceans you know uh shoreline than than then people assume and uh you know that's that 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 does worry me and I, I don't mean to just be fatalistic but i think we have to live in the world as it is if we're going to really try to speak up on these issues and come up with alternatives you know as a as a, a writer and a vague thinker i'm obviously much better at pointing out problems than crafting solutions and i think we should be honest about our strengths and weaknesses but at the same time and part of it is because the solutions are really hard i mean it, it's it's unclear to no, know how to organize for example an anti a really strong anti-war movement again in the and i'm not necessarily calling for bringing it back but in the absence of a draft in the absence of a war tax attacks in in a a situation where the technology and the strategy especially when the democrats are in charge to some extent is towards war as invisible abstraction at least for us for our people tech savvy proxies you know um drones and advisors like we've come up with all these ways to kind of make war abstract. And, Contractors. And really, yeah. And it really, really does pull the life mm-hmm. out of many citizens' ability mm-hmm. to even follow what's going on. And the media is complicit in that uh, or to care a whole lot. And I, and I don't mean that as self righteously or as accusatory as it sounds, but th- these are important issues. And folks, like I had said yesterday at one point, you know have to like continue to realize and, and be educated mm-hmm. that that war and militarism is a kitchen table issue you know in the trade-offs in the blowback in terms of civil liberties and militarization of like police and such like that I have to understand that these are really linked things and uh, and and it's it's hard to watch sometimes and feel like man wow, there are there aren't hundreds of thousands of people in the streets for the newest Obscenity in American foreign policy, which might even include shattering a nation, you know, or or, or 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 you know invading and occupying a place, or or just just a war going on long enough. I mean, my last point on this, and I and I am being a little insufferable here and exasperating, probably, but I think it's important when, hopefully not, but most likely when 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 Biden maintains troops in Afghanistan, for example, and then when the Taliban decides, oh yeah, well now you're it's open season on Americans again, and when they manage, and I hope I really hope it's not when. But if and when they managed to kill a soldier, probably some advisor's driver, who was born after 9-11, millions of Americans should be in the street that minute that news breaks. And I, it's such a dangerous thing to say shoulds, but I feel like in a functioning so- like society, right, or political system, there would be this sense that that is grotesque. Like th- this war that's been unpopular for so long that even the 73% of the veterans of it are against it. Um, that someone you know born after 9/11 that's just mm-hmm. a symbolic thing, but it's an important one when that happens uh, and, and it may very well, I don't know that we'll see the response that many of us probably are hoping for and and then when we don't that's when we have to come back in and kind of answer what you what you were asking sort of or, or mentioning it then we got to look at the system that produces that that produces a level of apathy, that produces a squelching of mm-hmm. foreign policy anti-war movements and then figure out what to do.
3: Well, there's also what you brought up during the webinar in uh, <clears throat> the manipulation of people through uh, framing our policies uh, in human rights terms, like women's rights in Afghanistan will completely go down the tubes if the American's 2,500 troops leave. <laughs> and you know, the fact that they do that to me says they feel like they have to do something to justify it. They don't have a rational thing. And this is something with a lot of emotional uh, impact. I remember, I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago or more when Time Magazine published this issue on on the front was a woman with her nose cut off saying, what will happen if we leave Afghanistan?
1: Of course, the subtext a lot of that is like, it's happening already, right? Right. Because it's already winning um that's tough i said it yesterday it's a tough thing to... yeah the idea that american first of all the idea that uh, human humanitarian concerns is what drives u.s war policy is is laughable yeah it really is that's not what that's not why we go do this if it was then our investments would look a lot different right i mean during the wars and and even before and and uh, when there is no war like we don't fight in Africa, for example, where we've got like now at least 29 bases and soldiers all over the place stirring up trouble. And, you know, we don't fight the root issues of like poverty and desertification and corruption in these governments. That's not where we invest our time and money. And we, we give money to Green Berets to give to war criminal you know, security forces run by military coup artists. Like, so the idea that, that it was humanitarian concerns that were driving it is, is laughable. And then, you know, I question the efficacy of force. So the efficacy of American intervention militarily to create, the, to, to create positive outcomes. I haven't seen a whole lot of evidence of that in any mid or long-term sense, at least. And um, it, is, it is fascinating to me to listen to war industry shills on groups, you know, on in like the Afghanistan study group and stuff like that, then ramble on and on about women's rights and minority rights and all this. And I'm like, your paycheck comes from either directly the emergence of death or through a think tank laundered like drug money through a think tank. You're paid by Raytheon, a a gun runners, and, and then you wanna lecture the American people about how see it turns out we do need to use all those weapons and war because, but why? For women's rights. And it's, it's unrealistic that we can achieve that with military force. And it is wildly and, a, and absurdly hypocritical for the people to use it as justification, but they're desperate, right? They're desperate. The pe- American people aren't with this anymore. They're gonna throw everything at the wall and see what sticks realism, strategy, they'll cook the books, they'll leak stuff from their CIA you know, media employees, which uh-huh. are their both, it seems. And, and then they'll be like, oh, and also uh, women, right? People care about women, right? Yeah, it's, wh- what about that? You know, babies, you know, it, it's so desperate and it's so clear and obvious um, to anybody, I think, who's really, really following this and has a little bit of a historical backstory context to it. And, and, that's, and that's not always the case.
0: How do we get all this to stop?
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i
3: hate to put you on the spot <laughs> yeah say that again i'm sorry say that again yeah how,
0: yeah. how do we how do we, stop? How, how do we get it to stop, it to stop. I, don't, I, I don't know well how do we get it to stop
1: well i mean if i if i had the uh silver bullet answer to that uh I don't would, I would think I would. You wouldn't be on our Zoom tonight. <laughs> I would have I probably used it. And i probably, they probably would have found a way to get rid of me if I had the answer. right? You know, that's probably right. I mean, I, and I don't have enough ground game in the movement. I mean, I, in, yeah. in terms of, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm new to yeah. that part, right. To, the, to yeah. the coalition building and the movement uh, yeah. dynamics. I'm a learner in that. I'm, you know, when it comes mm-hmm. to some of the policy issues, I, I think I have something mm-hmm. to say, but you know what do i think about at night like when i'm just having weird weird denny thoughts like uh how do you stop it wow there's a lot of things we haven't tried at least not in mass ways or at least because there isn't enough of a mass movement behind it it's like if something is this absurd and this gruesome and and off the rails as much american foreign policy and just war policy has been it's like i Part of me is like we just you just need to shut the like why are we you know sit down in the streets and shut systems down like I, maybe the mail doesn't need to run i mean i, don't know, I guess it illegal am i going to go to jail for saying that i mean i don't know like the point is like i'm talking about peaceful sort of direct action in mass ways yeah, yeah. disruption is pressure yeah mass disruption because whatever's happening now is like they basically laugh i feel i mean i picture these democrats and republicans running national security policy like in smoke filled rooms like giggling about some of the conversations we're having right now and, and and some of the the activism that surrounds this much of which is more serious than what I do I, I you know I don't think it really causes much of a blip on on the policy radar apparently I mean I'm not saying it has no effect I'm just saying that it's not working in a systemic way right we're not we're not turning the, the battleship it's still driving right at that iceberg Titanic style
0: and Right at the iceberg and right over the cliff, but you know, so there's tons of stuff we could talk about. But um, in the the uh, last several minutes or whatever, what what do you want to say? What what did you come on here to yeah. tell us?
1: So um, I'm I'm just gonna I'm interested in in a, in a million issues and and I talk about a ton of them and um, three that are on my mind. You know. Um, because wouldn't you know that after this, I'm on a, a Code Pink panel with like 50 other people talking about the Cold War. Actually, it's a kind of like, a, it's like a, it's like almost like a teach-in that's been running. It's going to be like running all day. And my panel starts out in 20 minutes, something like that. And I think, I, I don't I mean, I'm talking about set in the Cold War. And it's interesting because I plan to talk about some of the issues I talked about on the show today. Um, so in some ways, I was like working out some of my thoughts that you'll hear on that if you were to hear it. All right.
0: The- this is rehearsal.
1: Right, it's, that's perfect. It's like what I use my podcast for. It's just like to say some crazy stuff and you know, eventually I'm like, oh, that's good. I'm gonna write that down. But I mean, the connections between the old Cold War and the new Cold War are, are palpable and real. But there's there's three things that I think I would hit on that I haven't much yet. And one is India. Like we do not talk enough about India in the US media, even you know, in US policy circles. Um, when there is talk of India, I think it's way off base and oversimplified. And so the kind of talk when it comes to China, for example, that you always hear from these pivot to Asia types is India is a balancer. Like India is this untapped human number of people and economic and presumably military um, balancer, like this untapped resource that's gonna help us balance China. And that seems to be the standard line on that. But I've got a real question about India, which is India colon balancer or basket case. And in many cases, I want to lean towards the latter. So there's all this talk of like India is, you know, the world's largest democracy, right? And like that's just that's uncritically accepted, you know, because they have elections. It's like there is a Hindu nationalist chauvinist right winger murder complicit when he was governor of uh, Gujarat, right, uh, this guy is a monster Modi, he's mm-hmm. a monster, and, and, and yeah. he is, and India's military is not where we say it is, I, I mean, in terms of being able to, like, deal with the Chinese, and then there's, like, the whole problem of the fact that, like, I think they get their bulletproof vests from China, you know what I mean, like, their, their economies are tied in, and oh, by the way, India has its ground forces, over half a million of them, Tied down in the largest for a long time now, largest military occupation and intervention Mm -hmm, in the world in Kashmir. I mean, which is a a totally absurd policy, repressive, you know, and it but it's invisible, not even reported on. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not allowed to talk that much about what Israel does in the West Bank and Gaza but you're really not even allowed to talk about what goes on in Kashmir. It's just not, doesn't exist. Most people don't even know what it is anymore. They're like, they don't even know. They don't remember the Led Zeppelin song. So they certainly don't know the policy in Kashmir. And, and so they're tied down there. Right. And, and they've been doing kind of, you know, uh, repressive police counterinsurgency. something to a certain extent, they, their military is not that strong, but they are skirmishing again for like the first time since the early sixties, bloody, in like the the Himalayas, you know, they're, they're they're literally like Chinese and Indian soldiers have beaten each other to death with spiked bats and fought hand to hand, and you know, dozens killed at like twenty thousand feet. Um, and that border kind of conflict, that frozen conflict <laughs> (pun intended), actually is uh, is 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 heating up again. But the idea that India is this great democracy that is so aligned with our supposed values I mean, we're not even aligned with our values uh, and that they're going to balance china i think is a misunderstanding of their power the, a misunderstanding of, of india's stability and of its actual government right and and the thing is modi's pretty popular right and that's that's the dirty little secret that's kind of an inconvenient truth so that's the one thing and then the other thing is and this is brief the the new cold war with china is playing out in africa of all places just like the old cold war did So keep an eye on Africa. I write a lot of articles about it. It's kind of my pet project right now, except that it's more than a pet project. I think it's really important. Keep an eye on Africa. Um, AFRICOM's commanders as part of that relevance game where they need funds, so they have to show that they're relevant. In 2018, when the National Defense Strategy was rewritten to say for the first time since 9-11 that terrorism is not our number one threat, but GPC is, and the military loves acronyms. GPC, Great Power Competition, I think is what they call it suddenly AFRICOM does like a study review of its own strategy plans, its own campaign plan. And they say, no, no, now our top priority is great power competition. And, and oh, and the Chinese and the Russians, are they're really coming into Africa and you know, exaggerating that threat and, and the level of military influence of those countries. So uh-huh. watching that is important. And then my final thing, and it's unrelated to a certain extent, although it's all related, is the Iraq thing is bothering me. I mean, yesterday was the anniversary, 18th anniversary. Of the absurd, illegal, ill-advised—you name the alliteration—the alliteration, the alliteration word—invasion um, of Iraq in 2003. U.S. troops are still there. We saw Biden bomb Syria over the uh, rocket attacks that are just blatantly blamed on Iran without digging into how complicated that really is and the agency of the actually Iraqi militias. But I, I want—I want people to keep an eye on Iraq too because. You know, Afghanistan's big time in the news because Biden's got to make a call and it looks like he's going to probably leave him there, but he's got to make a call on whether the troops come home on May 1st. But, you know, I think the Iraq mission goes on even more uncritically, oddly enough. Um, Mm -hmm. And what you have there is a bunch of Americans who are uh, on these bases, muddled and mindless, missionless missions. Uh, And, you know, what they are is rocket magnets. I mean, they're big rocket targets. And then every one of those rockets if it errantly lands or if it actually hits its intended target and kills an American, you know, look for Biden to do what he did again, but maybe worse, which is feel like he has to show toughness and respond. And I just think that the, uh, we basically have those American soldiers in Iraq. The only thing they can achieve is to die and have their death be rebranded as justification for new war in the region surrounding Iran and, that is a crime. That is a crime against the soldiers that our society so carefully fetishizes, right? They, it's beyond thanks, it's beyond adulation, it's fetishization. You, They love, you know, our government and everyone says they love the troops so much, they're willing to put them in a rock where all they are is rocket magnets without a mission. So those are the three things that are on my mind. Probably went a little over several minutes, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> I Absolutely. think we'll find
3: a way to include that <laughs> we definitely will find
0: a way to include that that was um, no, that's that's that was extraordinary really so, appreciate that yep yeah, you know and um <clears throat> uh, Harvey and I were uh, Vietnam veterans and um we we did get we did get that sense that uh, all right all we are all all the, the all those poor young guys that are in country all they are and I'd never heard it phrased that way but just rocket magnets or, uh, or sniper magnets or um, whatever type, whatever else, just magnets. And uh, um, you know, at the end of the war, that at the end of the occupation, um, the troops actually decided, okay, we're not gonna do this anymore. We're not going out on patrol. We're gonna just sit and, and stop. So, well, this has been extraordinary.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate this. And um, if you guys want to do it again, let me know. Or if, oh, oh, Do you
0: have a favorite song that you want us to finish the show with?
1: Oh, boy. I mean, I, I have a lot. But, I mean, I really like I Got a Name by uh, Jim Croce. But, uh, uh, that's it's Because I really like the whole, like, bit, you know, like, uh, you know, they could change their minds, but they can't change me, you know, if it gets me uh, a- yeah. So they're proud, it's a little bit of like my insufferable, it's kind of my anthem, but I grew yeah. up on that. But, I, but it's okay if you don't play that, it's fine. But that'd be great.
0: It's I good. got a name by Jim Croce. Oh, right. yeah, I, I love, love it! That. I yeah. always
1: love that song. Yeah, I told you, old soul. All right, gentlemen. Well, um, yeah, send me the link whenever it's up, and I'll, I'll send you those, and we'll talk soon.
0: All right, take care. Take care Thanks, man. Danny. That was our extraordinary discussion with Danny Sherson, And remember, you can follow him on Twitter at SkepticalVet. Check out his website, skepticalvet.com. And remember, he manages the Eisenhower Media Network. Check that out, too. Also look for his books. The first one, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. And his second book, Patriotic Descent: America in the Age of Endless War. Remember, he also has a podcast in which he shares his co-host with Chris Henry Hendrickson. And that is called Fortress on a Hill. And Danny, if you're listening, I agree. Audrey Hepburn was the most beautiful woman to ever live. Okay, so with that, as Danny requested, here is Jim Croce and I Have a Name. So have a great week. Bye now.
4: like the whelp for will and the babies cry. I've got a song. I've got a song. And I carry it with me and I sing it loud. If it gets me nowhere, I go there proud. Moving me down the highway. Rolling me down the highway. Moving the I a lot more. Bye. Oh, I could share it if you want me to If you're going my way I'll go with you Don't bend me down the highway do me down the highway
2: Move ahead so I won't